0: Let me ask you to turn your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 6. As Justin mentioned in introducing the passage in Mark 8, we come to this record of the feeding of the 5,000 so miraculously by our Savior. I'm going to deal with both of these miracles, in this sermon, but refer very infrequently to the feeding of the 4,000. In a moment I'm going to show you some of the differences between the two, but focus on their similarity and draw common lessons. In our account given to us by Mark, this is actually the 10th specific miracle that is recorded. Eight of the miracles that we consider together were performed on individuals. Of those eight, two were the expulsion of demons. The rest were healings except one, namely our Christ, our Savior, calming the storm. Here we come to a A different kind of a miracle. A miracle performed before and on the behalf of literally thousands. There was a massive crowd that had gathered. Mark tells us at the end of, or I think it's Luke actually, no it's Matthew tells us at the end of his account of this that in addition to the 5,000 men, there were women and children. We do not know how many some speculate that virtually for every man there was a wife and two or three children. It would be very difficult. It would be in fact impossible to prove that. If that were the case, then our Lord fed something more like twenty to twenty five thousand people on this occasion that 's a pretty extravagant conclusion and assumption, but it isn't extravagant to believe that there were hundreds more besides the 5,000, perhaps a few more thousand, but at least 5,000 men. This miracle is the only miracle performed by our Savior recorded by all, all four Gospels with the exception of the record of the resurrection, but we think of that in a sort of different category. Even though Jesus, in one sense, raised himself from the dead, these are miracles that he performed for other people. And so this is the only miracle recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, let me just say a word about the account in Matthew chapter and Mark chapter 8, which Justin read for us, um, all I want to add is that there are several differences, but some very considerable similarities. This particular feeding of the 5,000 happened on the occasion of Christ and his disciples seeking a retreat. This one pertained to 5,000, the other to 4,000. This one was at the end of one day of teaching. The feeding of the 4,000 was at the end of three days of disciples or of people following him. This one, there were seven loaves of bread and two fish. The other one, there were seven and a few. This one, they were seated upon grass. The other just says ground. In this miracle, they were directed to sit down in groups of hundreds and fifties. In the others, there's no such direction. At the end of this miracle, there were 12 baskets full of fragments left over. At the end of the other, there were seven. However, two different words are used for baskets, and in fact, the larger basket is referred to in Mark chapter 8. In fact, it's the kind of basket that the Apostle Paul was let down in over a wall. So it's possible that there was even more food left over after the feeding of the 4,000. In Mark's account, the disciples initiate the discussion about the people and their need to be sent home. In chapter 8, Jesus initiates. In this miracle, Christ blesses the food once. In the feeding of the 4,000, he blesses the bread, and then later he blesses the fish. In this miracle, Christ felt compassion for those who were scattered like sheep without a shepherd. In chapter 8, with the feeding of the 4,000, his compassion was directed to the people who had been with him so long and who were hungry and weak. In this one, he tells the disciples to do something about the problem. You give them something to eat. In the feeding of the 4,000, he simply initiates that on his own. So those are some of the differences. They're relatively insignificant. What is important are the similarities. In both cases, you have a massive crowd. In both cases, cases the Savior is being moved by compassion. In both cases, he talks to his disciples about the problem. In both cases, he prays. In both cases, he performs a stupendous miracle that had to do with multiplying food, which began with such a small portion. So those are some of the differences and similarities. And having said that, I'm not going to refer us to Mark chapter 8, except to prove something different in just a moment. So back to chapter 6 and verses 30 and following. Now I would like to read Mark's account. Beginning with verse 30, it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. Why did he say that to them? Well, notice the next verse. It explains why. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. The place would have been desolate. It was a desolate place. But the problem is, as we'll immediately discover, that by the time they got there, it wasn't desolate. Notice verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. By the way, the boat only had about four miles to travel in a straight line across the lake. These people, many of them, ran, hurried ten miles to get there. And if you wonder how could they possibly beat them, well, we don't know. It's possible that there was some wind and there was some opposition. It's also possible that when Jesus and his disciples arrived, that they didn't disembark from the boat immediately because, after all, their goal was to have a little rest and a little respite. So when they get there, there's a crowd. Verse 34, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Luke tells us specifically he taught them about the kingdom of God. And when it grew late, late in the afternoon, evening, perhaps the sun was beginning to set, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, and notice how this response you give them something to eat and they said to him you can almost feel sort of the frustration perhaps a little sarcasm now in the the spirit and the attitude of his disciples shall we go and buy 200 denarii a denarii is a day's wages 200 days worth of wages 8 months worth of wages somewhere to get bread and give it to them to eat and maybe implied in this question are all of the other obstacles for such a project how would 12 men carry enough food back from various villages bakeries perhaps weren't even open in order to feed 5,000 how'd you like to get 12 people together and say all we have to do is go get enough bread and fish to feed 5,000 people and bring it back to them really you sense the, the frustration And I'm going to call it an unholy frustration because of one of the points that I want to make in the message this morning. But it seems so utterly ridiculous and impossible to them. In verse 38, Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, and John, by the way, tells us that it was Philip that Jesus asked this question to, and Philip found Andrew, and Andrew found a little boy, a little boy who had a little lunch with him. Seven or five loaves of bread and two fish. So they say five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Green grass. Only Mark points this out. So they sat down in groups. And by the way, this was actually on a mountainside, we're told from the Gospel of John. It must have been a beautiful sight, really. Blue sky, sun perhaps beginning to fade in the west, colorful garments, 5,000 people sitting in groups all over the side of the mountain. And taking the five loaves, verse 41, and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. That is to say, he prayed. And he broke the loaves. Some have wondered, why did he break them? Why didn't he just multiply the loaves and everybody gets one loaf? Again, we don't know, except perhaps, as one suggested, in the very breaking and distribution, Jesus was teaching that this is the way he will bless and multiply our benevolence and our kindness when we distribute what we have and share it. It's all speculation. But at any rate, he begins to break the loaves and give them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate. This is what is astounding. They all ate and were satisfied. It's not like, well, that took the edge off my appetite. I can, I can probably make it home now. They're fully satisfied. And they took up twelve fish baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men now you know what liberals do with a passage like this they have to explain away the supernatural so they say well you know really what happened was a little boy was kind enough and generous enough to say i'll share my lunch and other people were so touched isn't that beautiful why don't we share what we have too And everyone started sharing, and when they were done sharing, there was so much food left over that it took 12 baskets to gather it. Isn't that a nice way to demythologize the Bible, to take away the supernatural? No, that's all there was. Five little loaves. We might think of them almost as rolls or maybe sort of flat pieces of bread and two fish. But when Jesus is done, it takes 12 baskets, gather the fragments. This is supernatural, through and through. Now, what a contrast we have here in this passage between what we saw last week and what we see today. If you were with us last Lord's Day, Jonathan brought to our attention a different feast, a feast hosted by wicked King Herod, sumptuous, I'm sure, wine all over the place, the best of royal menus, and people were gorging themselves and getting drunk, and wickedness was taking place. It was basically a death orgy. It was a debauchery. It was a wicked feast. And today, we see a different feast. We see a wonderful, loving, compassionate, supernatural Savior Proving that he was the king of a kingdom, showing mercy to people in need, and performing a miracle. A simple meal. Which banquet would you rather have been at? Herod's or Jesus? What a contrast. Now, what I want to do this morning, very quickly, is to show you the structure of this account. Explain it very briefly and then draw some lessons and some applications. Now the first thing we have in verses 30, and actually through um, the first part of verse 32, is the apostles returning to the Lord Jesus Christ, who had sent them out and reporting on their first um, mission endeavor. Remember back in chapter 6, Jesus calls 12 in verse 7, He begins to send them out two by two, so six pairs went out. We're told that he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And then if you'll skip to verse 12, you'll see actually Mark telling us how successful they actually were. This isn't the record of them telling Jesus, this is Mark telling us. And it says in verse 12, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. And immediately what you have, if you, if you, will, uh, if you will accept this, is a parenthesis. It's a little parenthesis. There's a little additional story sandwiched in here. It's about King Herod, because verse 14 tells us that he heard about it. What did he hear about? He heard about what now twelve are doing, and these disciples were associated with Jesus. He heard about it. And when Mark reminds us of what Herod heard and what Herod began to fear, it naturally led him into the story of what Herod had done to John the Baptist. And that's the parentheses. But in fact, in order to better understand the story, sometimes it's helpful just to leave the parentheses out for a moment, skip right from verse 13 to verse 30. Notice, I'm reading verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Verse 36. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So really what we have, beginning with verse 30, is an account of the apostles returning ...to the Lord Jesus and reporting about their mission trip. And I only want to point out two or three things. First of all, the significance of them being called apostles. Notice in verse 30, the apostles return to Jesus. Back in chapter 3, we have an account of him gathering these twelve for the first time and calling them apostles... He sent them. He was going to eventually send them out as apostles. Now he sends them out. And having been sent out and returning, Mark calls them apostles. What's the big deal? The big deal is not the ones being sent, but the sender. The word apostle means a sent one. Someone commissioned. Someone especially sent out to represent someone else and to do something for them. But the big deal is not who was being sent. In effect, it's not even what they did so much as the fact that they were sent by someone. This is the Lord Jesus Christ asserting His kingship. This is part of the new Israel being formed. He chose 12 apostles purposely because there were 12 tribes. This is the new Israel This is the New Covenant people, and He is the sender. That's what's significant. And when they're done doing what He sent them out to do, they come back to Him, because He is the one to whom they report. And so it's significant because it it helps us to see what Jesus is doing. He's not just performing miracles. He's establishing something. He's demonstrating what he's been preaching about. The kingdom of God has arrived. And so the apostles, the sent ones, come back to the sender. And they report about the success of their what we might call their first student teaching opportunity. The students were sent out. And they went out in pairs. And God did bless them. He gave them authority to do these supernatural things. And the only other thing I want to point out is that when they came back, they also probably were becoming famous, and there was quite a stir and quite a report going around, and even they now were a part of the crowd problem. And the crowd problem was so bad, as I pointed out in our reading, that they couldn't even have a meal together. They couldn't even sit down and eat. But notice the compassion of the Lord Jesus, even for his own disciples or apostles. He says to them, he says, fellows, I want you to come away by yourselves, that is without a crowd, with me, to a desolate place and rest. For a while you need rest, we all need rest. we need some respite. so let 's go to a desolate place, and in verse thirty two we find that their plan was to go in a boat because it would be harder for people to follow them, but apparently, the place they intended to go didn't require them to go out far to the south in the lake where it would be hard for people to follow them but apparently the crowd that was just so excited about Jesus and the disciples let's find out where they're going they're probably going to such and such look you can see the boat let's keep going around the lake on the north end and they could keep seeing the little boat making its way and they were able to get there as I've already pointed out before the boat at least was disembarked and so much for the R&R. They were hoping to have some rest, some relaxation, some time perhaps of debriefing with the Savior, some times of refreshment with Him. And perhaps there's a spiritual lesson in here. I think there is. I think we all need rest from time to time. Elijah was most vulnerable to temptation when he was exhausted. That's a biblical principle. God designed our bodies to take rest. And it's a reminder that we are frail, that we are fallen, that we are finite, that we are dependent. And we all need to be sure that we take the rest that we need, not only on a daily basis, but from time to time to get away from the situation and to be refreshed. And what a wonderful time for these men to talk to their Savior. And all of us should look for those times to be with our Savior alone and just commune with him, and just reflect, and replenish. Well, that's, that's what happened in, in these first verses. They return, and they report to the Savior, but no rest for the weary. And you have to think that the disciples probably weren't as gracious. I, I can't say probably. <laughs> I know they weren't. If If they were like us, and... Surely they were. They were probably quite discouraged when they got to the harbor and they saw thousands of people waiting for them. Lord, I thought we were going to get a break. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, you know, I'm disappointed too. I'm so discouraged. This is frustrating. Let's get back in the boat and let's go down the coast further. Sooner or later, we'll wear them out. We'll find a place where we can rest. No. We read that he looks upon them with compassion. Now, I don't know that I really need to explain the rest of this. We've read it. You got the picture. He disembarks. There are thousands of people. Immediately he feels compassion for them because he sees them like sheep without a shepherd. But he teaches them. And I want to emphasize that. Jesus teaches them many things. And I told you that Luke's account says he talked to them about the kingdom of God. It doesn't say he saw them and said, we've got to get them something to eat. No, he saw them and he felt compassion for them because they were obviously like sheep that had no shepherd and they needed to be taught and they needed to be instructed. And it was after a long day of instruction that he began to be concerned for their physical well-being. And John does tell us that it was Jesus' concern first and foremost. Jesus knew what He was going to do all along. John tells us that when He spoke to Philip about it, He was testing Philip because He already knew what He was going to do. So as the day starts to come to its end, Jesus proposes that the disciples them why did he tell them to do that again we can only speculate but surely he wanted them to feel the impossibility of the situation and they well felt it and so they quickly argue back almost in a disrespectful way lord that's that's ridiculous we can't even begin to do that and he wanted them to feel their inability so that his miracle would appear all the more striking and all the more gracious. And so, he finds that one little boy has a little lunch, and he directs the disciples, to have everybody sit down in groups of 50s and 100, and then he lifts his head up, and doesn't say he closed his eyes, he looked to heaven symbolically to ask for God's blessing upon this food, and as he began to break it, and this is where the Bible doesn't even tell us what happened, I mean, your imagination is as good or maybe better than mine. I wish that we could see this on sort of a computerized movie, the way they can make stuff so real now. Um, Somehow, as Jesus was breaking the bread, it just kept being there in His hands. It just kept... The the little loaves weren't getting smaller, and He just kept breaking and, and breaking and breaking it. It must have been amazing. And I'm not sure if the disciples... Really understood what was going on. I have more to say about that in a few minutes. They were, they were filled with much unbelief and they weren't deeply moved and changed by this experience. I will show you that. But many people speculate that the multitude didn't even know about the miracle. I don't know for that, about that for sure either. Because they were, they were on the mountainside, and they weren't where it was all being given out. And maybe they wondered, where did all this food come from? Maybe the word spread. Jesus is multiplying the bread and the fish. But what an amazing thing to imagine. The more he broke, the more there was. And he just kept breaking, and he did the same thing with the fish. And after everyone had been fed, there was so much food, as we've already pointed out, that there were, seven bas- or there were 12 baskets left. 12 baskets were needed to collect the remnants. That's what happened. That, that's all I'm going to say about it. You got the picture. You just read the story. It's amazing. It's astounding. So what do I want to do now? What I want to do now is contrast the Lord Jesus with His disciples for just a few moments, and I want us to see things in Him that we need to see in ourselves. Let's see how different we are from Him. Of course, He was the Son of God. We can't be God. But there's much about Him that, that He wants us to be, like himself. And there are three words that come to my mind. First of all is the word perception. Secondly, compassion. And third is power. Now what am I talking about? Well, I want you to notice, please, in verse 34, it says, When he went ashore, he saw the crowd. He saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, what strikes you first is the fact that he had compassion. But I want you to see that the compassion was a result of what he perceived. It's what he perceived that broke his heart. What did he see? He didn't see what the disciples saw. Do you know what the disciples saw? People. People. Just people. What do you see when you go to the mall? People. What do you see when you go to a fair? People. What do you see when you go to a, sta- uh, to a stadium? People, just people. At least that's what we tend to see, and that's what we tend only to see. And but when Jesus looked, you know what he saw? He saw people. Yeah, he did. But he saw people who struck him as being like sheep without a shepherd. And it broke his heart. It moved him to the very core of his being. He felt compassion for these people. He knew what kind of teaching they were sitting under by the rabbis. He knew that they desperately needed truth. He knew that there was no guidance and direction in their lives. They were searching. They were longing. They didn't know what they needed. They were like sheep, scattered, with no shepherd to lead and guide them. You see the perception of our Savior and the compassion that He felt Sometimes we do see things, but we don't feel compassion. Often we don't see at all, but it's hard to feel something that you don't see. So we need perception. We need compassion like our Savior. And when He saw them like sheep without a shepherd, His heart was broken and moved. And the third thing is that, of course, He had omnipotence to solve the problem. So there's something about his perception, there's something about his compassion, there's something about his power that has to be contrasted with the disciples. They didn't see sheep. They saw people. They felt a little compassion of some sort, perhaps sort of a social concern. Lord, you know, it's getting late. Don't you think that we probably ought to send them home because uh, if they don't go now, they're not going to be able to get any food in the local village. It's sort of a social, pragmatic concern. But their hearts aren't broken. And, of course, they have no power because when Jesus says, well, why don't you feed them, they say, basically, that's impossible. How could, we, how could we even think about doing that? So you see the contrast between our Savior and his disciples. Now, I want to bring to you three major applications from this. The first thing I want to say is we need to look at people individuals and crowds, with the eyes and heart of our Savior. And we need to find the spiritual state of the people we look at to be the thing that is the foremost on our minds, the most prominent thing. If, Dear people, if we learned by the grace of God how to do that, we wouldn't feel so much disgust with people we wouldn't be so quick to be condemning. We wouldn't be so indifferent. We would have a different dominant emotion. But when we see people, often what we feel is disgust, condemnation, indifference. And we need to realize that the masses are still like sheep without a shepherd. Davis County And Owensboro and the surrounding counties are filled with people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And we need to see that. And we need to feel that. And we need to be moved by that. And I submit to you that we should pray to our Savior and say, Lord Jesus, help me to be like you. Open my eyes. Give me Your perception. I'm not asking that You make me divine. I'm asking You to give me the ability to look at people and realize that they're not just people. They're sheep without a shepherd. They need a Gospel. They need a Savior. They're wandering all over the place. Sheep by nature wander. They wander into dangerous places. They are devoured by wolves. They don't know where they should eat. They don't know where they should find nourishment. They're trying to fill their appetites with anything and everything. They're like sheep. And we need to have the heart and the mind and the disposition of our Savior. And I believe that is one of the some of the communicable attributes that He wants us to share. We, We can't have His omniscience. We can't have his omnipotence. But we can have his heart. And we need his heart. And we should pray for his heart. That's my first application. My second application is the unbelief of the disciples. And as we look at it, and I told you I wanted to come back, you will see that it is rooted in ignorance and in hardness of heart. Would you notice verse uh, 52 of this same chapter? This was after Jesus was walking on the sea, and he got into the boat, and they were astounded. And it says, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What were they astounded at, that Jesus walked on the sea? Now look, it, it... I'm sure we would have been a lot like him, but doesn't the time come when you should no longer be astounded with what Jesus does? Doesn't the time come when you say, Lord Jesus, you're amazing. Why should I be surprised that you're walking on the water? I saw you speak to a dead girl and bring her to life. Are you kidding me? You have healed thousands of people now. And this very story begins with an account of Jesus' healing. Mark doesn't tell us. Matthew tells us that He healed many people on this occasion. And the disciples are filled with unbelief and with ignorance and with hardness of hearts. That's what verse 52 says. They did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And if you go over to chapter 8, the portion where uh, Justin was reading, I will just point out to you that in verse 17, Jesus had raised the subject of leaven, and so immediately their mind goes to bread. And when their mind goes to bread, they start wondering about whether or not they're going to have enough bread. And then Jesus says to them in verse 17, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? He wasn't even talking about the kind of bread you can eat when he said, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees. But since their mind went to physical bread and they were worried about physical bread, he says to them, are you kidding me? You're worried about bread? Don't you remember anything? Are your hearts so hardened you still don't understand? Now before we get too harsh on the disciples, the apostles, just remember... We're made of the same stuff and we're very, very plagued by remaining, the remaining sin of unbelief. And often our hearts are so hard we still don't get it. We just don't get it. And so the disciples, they see no alternative but to send the people home. Jesus, the only thing we can do is dismiss them and send them home and disperse them. Now that's a especially unacceptable in, in Mark chapter 8 with the 4,000 because they've already seen the 5,000 plus and wouldn't it seem reasonable for the disciples to say to Jesus on that occasion hey Jesus this would be another great opportunity to multiply the bread and the fish we've got some we got seven loaves this time we only had five before and we got a few fish do what you did before Jesus we know you can do it We love to see your compassion. We love to see your power. This is your opportunity, Lord Jesus. Show your compassion and your power and do that great thing. It's it's not there. It's not even there. What's wrong with us? Did you notice I didn't say what's wrong with them? What's wrong with us? How many times does God have to bless us and be gracious to us and provide for us and be kind to us before we finally get it and say, God, you're big enough for my problems. You're the solution to this problem. The disciples should have come to Jesus and said, Jesus, it's getting late, but if you want, you you can keep the sun from going down. Why don't you do that? And let's teach some more. And by the way, why don't you just create some food? You're the creator. None of that faith characterize them and i'm suggesting that we're way too much like the disciples now i want to come to my last application and by the way i think sometimes god does create situations for us just so that we will feel our utter weakness and inability he knew what he was doing all day long he knew what he was going to do and when he told the disciples, you give them something to eat, he wanted them to feel their utter weakness and ability to do the impossible so that they would look outside of themselves to him. And that's how we should see those situations in our lives that seem so utterly impossible. But here's the great, great lesson I want to leave you with. Now I want you to listen to this closely. I hope I haven't worn you out. I want to put it like this. Christ providing bread and fish was about much, much more than just another evidence of his supernatural power. It was that, but it was much, much more. You know what it was about, especially, primarily? It was an evidence that the kingdom of God had arrived. And I keep saying this, because that's what he's demonstrating. The king himself was on the scene. Now listen, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament had come. Messiah means anointed one. He came as prophet, priest, and king, all wrapped up in one. But, here's the additional thought that I would submit to you this morning. That promised Messiah was also described in the Old Testament as the successor and the greater than Moses. Follow me. Moses. Moses was a deliverer. Moses led the children of Israel out of bondage from Egypt. Moses led them into the wilderness. But Moses was often frequently frustrated and he cried out to God, what are we going to do with these people? What do you expect me to do with these people? Now they're begging for meat. All the fish of the sea wouldn't be enough to feed them. What do we do? God answers his prayer and through Moses, in a sense the type of the greater deliverer yet to come, God rains down manna from heaven. the greater greater Moses has arrived on the scene. A greater exodus is taking place. A greater deliverance from bondage is happening. And a better bread is being provided. And this bread was the Savior Himself. He even said, I am the bread of life. You know what Jesus is doing? He's constituting The new Israel, the spiritual Israel made up of the elect from ethnic Israel and made up of the elect of all of the nations. And he is constituting this new nation which we can be a part of. So we have the greater than Moses on the scene. But you know what else? We also have the greater than David on the the scene because the Old Testament prophecies also promised that the Messiah was going to be a better shepherd than even King David. You know that King David was first a shepherd. The man after God's own heart. And I I want you to turn to one passage with me. This is the only other passage we're turning to. I want you to go with me just for a moment to Ezekiel chapter 34. And while you're turning to Ezekiel 34, I'm going to read for you a verse from chapter 37. In just a moment, I'm showing you something from 34. But listen to what it says in Ezekiel 37, verse 34. Actually, verse 24. This is a prophecy. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one Shepherd, my servant David wait a minute I think David's dead isn't he David's gone you saying David's going to be raised from the dead no I'm saying that the real David the final David the great David the perfect David is going to come and he's going to be a shepherd king it's a prophecy concerning our Savior and so we have a prophecy in chapter 34 and in the first several verses you have an indictment being given to the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy against these shepherds in verse 2 it says, Say to them, Thus says the Lord, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should you not shepherd, should, you, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. This is the indictment. And then in verse 6 he says, My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains, and on every high hill my sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. What did Jesus see in the wilderness? Of Galilee. He saw sheep! Sheep scattered without a shepherd. But then, if you will notice, please, in verse 23, and I wish I had time to open up more of chapter 34, here it gets very specific. This is the promise, this is the prophecy. And I, verse 23, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. This is David in the form of Jesus Christ. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. What's happening in, in Mark chapter 6? This shepherd king is manifesting himself as the fulfillment of the prophecy. He has his sheep, thousands of them, in the wilderness. He feels compassion for them. They're without a shepherd. They don't know where they're going. They need guidance. They need direction. And they need strength. And they need sustenance. And He knows that their deepest appetites are not being met. And so He demonstrates to them not only His ability to make bread, but to be the bread of life. That's what's, really, that's what's happening. That's what's really happening here. This is amazing. Jesus is showing himself to be the fulfillment of all the prophecies, and he's making this wonderful new people this new Israel. So I have to conclude, and I just want to say to you, dear people, this is really beautiful. Please don't read Mark 6. Please don't read Matthew 14, Luke 9. Uh, John 6, just that, well, that was just another miracle Jesus did. No, it's not just another miracle Jesus did. There was always intent and purpose and it wasn't just generally to prove that He was God. It was that, but it was much more than that. In the Gospel of John, seven times He says, I am. And He says, I am the Good Shepherd. And He says, I am the Bread of Life. And in this miracle, He demonstrates himself to be both a good shepherd and the bread of life and that's what he can be to us and those of you who are unconverted listening to me this morning would you please just be humble enough to see yourself as a lost wandering sheep that has an appetite that that can never be satiated never be satisfied by all the stuff you've tried to satisfy it with you've tried everything you don't know where you're going you don't know what to think you don't know what to do you're in big serious danger all the time because you're just wandering all over the place and you're hungry and you're hungry and you're hungry and you keep trying to satisfy your, your deepest appetite with that which can't satisfy you. And I submit to you that what you need, listen to me, what you need is a good shepherd. A good shepherd. You're just a lost, wandering sheep. And I, I offer to you the One who offers Himself to you, Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, who gathers His sheep and brings them into a flock and protects them and leads them and guides them and who feeds them with what? With Himself. The bread of life. That's what you need. And that's what He is to those of us who believe in Him and trust Him. And that's what He should become more to those of us who believe in Him and trust Him. Dear people, you, my brothers and sisters, go away from this text today and say, what a Savior. What a shepherd. The fulfillment of all those prophecies. He's my shepherd. I shall not want. He is my bread of life. That's what we have in Mark 6 and in Mark 8. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the record of it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you did. We thank you for helping us to see. We trust more than just another miracle performed, but a miracle that is symbolic of who you are. And we thank you that you are the Good Shepherd and that you're not characterized by any of those horrible things that we just read about in Ezekiel 34. We pray that you will help every one of us in this room and in the overflow room to come to you as the Good Shepherd and as the bread of life and as the one who is establishing a kingdom that will have no end a kingdom of grace now, a kingdom of glory later. Thank you for your kingdom. May every single one of us who have heard this word today, if we haven't yet found entrance into that kingdom, be born again so that we might enter into that kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.